This podcast is brought to you by Part Mobile, the leader in smart parking and mobility solutions. Part Mobile has over 14 million users and is available in seven of the top 10 cities in the U.S. for on and off street parking. Learn how Part Mobile can help your parking program at parkmobile.io. Hello and welcome to the Parking Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the $100 billion parking industry and the people that make it go. I'm your host, Isaiah Mao, and this is the Parking Podcast. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Parking Podcast. Today we have a super cool guest with us in the podcast. His name is Harry Campbell, also known as the Rideshare Guy and author of the book, The Rideshare Guide. Welcome, Harry. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, Isaiah. Thanks for having me on, and I'm excited to chat parking today. All right, we're excited too. So I heard you on the Mobility Podcast. I think those guys are awesome. They do a wonderful job. And I was listening, I thought, you know, in the parking industry, we deal so much with, with ride-sharing uh, companies, ride-sharing drivers when we're managing these on-street spaces and municipal curves, but in even airport pickup, drop-off, universities, but rarely do we ever listen to kind of the ride-share driver's point of view. Yeah. And I think you kind of speak for the, for the ride-share community in, in a way. You know, I, I heard about your book, quickly bought it, read it in like one setting, and I thought, Nice. Man, you'd be the perfect person to, to talk to about this. So, uh, Yeah, no, I think that uh, definitely sort of sums up what I do. And I think a lot of the work I've done, especially in the past year or two, is kind of advocating on behalf of drivers, not necessarily like on, a labor, on the labor side, but really more, uh, you know, just with a lot of the people who are making big decisions or looking at these future areas of mobility and transportation, like parking is one of them, autonomous vehicles is another, right? There's all of these sectors that I'm by no means an expert in parking. I know how to park a car, uh, barely, but I do know how to park a car, but that's the extent of my parking knowledge. But I do know a lot about rideshare. And now that rideshare is starting to intersect with all of these other industries, I think it's super important to not only kind of make sure that that point of view is heard, but also to ensure that the best outcomes are happening, whether it's policies in the government and public policy, or just helping, you know, private businesses sort of accommodate for this future where, hey, you know, maybe uh, the parking trends that we're seeing are shifting, but what is it that's coming in the future? Because I think if you just listen to Uber and Lyft, you're going to get a very biased viewpoint. If you just listen to the governments, you're going to get a very different viewpoint. But I think really there in the middle are the drivers, the ones actually doing, you know, millions of pickups and drop-offs today. To me, it seems like they're the best people to listen to, but probably uh, getting listened to the least. Yeah, and we have the same problem. I'm glad you said that because we just listened to other parking professionals' point of view. And so I wanted to bring someone, you know, from your industry to, to talk about that. And you mentioned being an expert. You know, I, I looked at your resume online and, you know, you've been New York Times, interviews on The Wired, NPR, the list goes on and on. But I guess take us back to the beginning. I, I think you're, you're what, you're a college student and you say, I want some part-time revenue. Yeah. I'm going to try to I'm going to try this Uber thing. And now you're this big expert. So kind of tell us the journey, how you got to where you were yeah. and where you are today. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess at a high level to talk about where I am today, you know, I think uh, the way I like to put it is I'm probably one of, I think I'm the only person who's ever driven for Uber and Lyft, but also interviewed Uber's CEO, uh, Dara Khosrowshahi. So that should sort of give you, you know, kind of like uh, the what I'm going for in my business. And really how I got started with Uber and Lyft is... It was after college, actually. I was working full-time as an engineer. So I used to be an aerospace engineer, basically doing the exact opposite of what I do now. 
And I heard about this thing called Uber and Lyft. This was 2014. So it was pretty new. You know, people were starting to talk about it here and there, but it wasn't mainstream yet. And I started driving for them, but I quickly realized, you know, it's not rocket science being an Uber and Lyft driver, but it is a little tougher than it looks. And it was just so new. So for me, it seemed like an interesting opportunity to start blogging about my experience. So I started a website almost, I think it was probably the first week or two of my driving. And I just, you know, started saying, hey, I went out and drove for a Saturday night in Newport Beach in Orange County, California, and here's what it was like. I drove a holiday weekend and here's how much money I made. And you know, since I was an engineer, I made a lot of spreadsheets and detailed all my earnings. And I was like, oh, here's how I could have done better. And uh, you know, I think the combination of, you know, well, I thought I was making good content. Um, there was a lot of interest in the topic, and there was also just no one else doing it. So I think those sort of three things really helped me out a lot. And, uh, you know, within about a year, the site was getting pretty decent traffic around 40 to 50,000 page views a month. And it was growing a lot. And I was still working full time, but I decided to, I could sort of see the growth trajectory. And I kind of, you know, saw that there are monetization opportunities on the horizon. And so I actually ended up quitting my day job as an engineer. So that was about four years ago and uh, starting doing the blog full time. And you know, over that those four years, I've kind of expanded my team. We now have a blog, podcast, YouTube channel, book for drivers, as you mentioned, a course for drivers. We do a lot of stuff behind the scenes when it comes to consulting and marketing and advertising and PR and advising. Um, but the, the front-facing part of the business is really all the content. So I've got a network of contributors and I myself am out there trying out all these services. And so we really cover not only the rideshare, but also the entire mobility and transportation industry from the point of the view of the workers. Let's talk parking right now. All right. Uh, I guess let's just dive right into it. Let's just take it back from when you're driving, your, your people are driving. What are some of the parking challenges, if any? Is, cha- is parking even a even on the forefront of their mind? Is it a non-issue? Yeah. But you're in a big city. I know it depends on the market, but you're in a busy city in California, rush hour, you got parking meters taken, you're trying to pick up and drop off. So mm-hmm. I guess, is this even an issue or no? You've got to get the yeah. driver, we got to go, you're going to drop them off in the middle of the street, doesn't matter, you just got to get the job done? Or is parking a challenge and do drivers have anxiety over curb space? Yeah, no, it's a big challenge and probably an opportunity. But I think the way drivers think about it is not necessarily like we need to, you know, redo the parking rules completely. They think about it more like, hey, pickups and drop offs are actually pretty challenging. You know, driving 45 miles an hour down the middle of the road or on the freeway or the highway, that's the easy part about being an Uber or Lyft driver. It's the pickups and drop offs that can be challenging, right? When you have a passenger who gets into your car and they get to rate you at the end of the trip and they want to be dropped off right in front of the bar where there's, you know, no parking, like you said, and it's, or maybe there's a red zone and there's no legal spot. You've got to circle all the way around the block. That's a challenging situation for a driver who's not necessarily trained in customer service or parking rules or parking etiquette or, you know, sort of navigating what that might take. So I think that's the thing that you kind of, as a driver, you have to balance. You've got a passenger in the back, right? And it's easy for a company like Uber and Lyft. You might hear them say, oh, you know, all of our drivers, they follow, you know, we, we tell them to follow the local parking rules and regulations. But when you're a driver and your livelihood depends on getting a five-star rating, because at 4.6, you're actually deactivated if you fall below 4.6, which a lot of people don't know, you probably are going to be pretty likely to, you know, especially when you're new, do pretty much whatever the passenger asks, right? If they say, pull over, you know, right here in front of the restaurant and 
backup traffic, <laughs> um, you know, then yeah. you're going to do that. So when I see a lot, you know, I think that uh, we, we may touch on this later, but, you know, it seems like a lot of people in the transportation industry kind of almost have it out for Uber and Lyft. But I think it's because they don't necessarily understand like the mechanics and the opportunities. You know, it's easy to say Uber and Lyft are causing all this traffic and all these backups. But when you have a passenger who wants to be dropped off right in front of the restaurant and they're also going to rate you and there's nowhere for you to drop them off, you know, is that completely the driver's fault? Is that, you know, I don't think it's any one party's fault. I think there's a lot of shared responsibility and opportunity. First of all, 4.6, make an exaggeration or 4.6, they could literally be. Yeah, that is the cutoff in most cities. So if you fall below a 4.6 average rating as a driver, you're actually uh, deactivated. And so it's a pretty, uh, you know, uh, the rating system, that might be a whole separate episode, but. (laughs) (laughs) I I was thinking like, you know, I'm a big movie buff, but like, Citizen Kane, the greatest movie of all time, like a 4.6 out of 5 would be its score. Yeah, pretty good, right? Like you might watch, uh, you know, you might eat at a four-star rated restaurant. You probably would eat, you know, I eat at four-star restaurants all the time on Yelp or TripAdvisor, sure. but a four-star Uber or Lyft driver is actually going to be long gone. And that puts in perspective because, you know, I see movie reviews where someone says nine out of 10, best movie, action movie I've seen in 10 years. I'm like, and you gave it a nine out of 10. Why not? 10? But yeah. that, it's that rating bias. I don't know if that's the word, but it makes you think if someone misses a turn or your Uber driver misses a turn causing you to be 30 seconds late and you think, Oh, I'll give him a four instead of five because they missed a turn. But that's crazy. You're affecting this person's career by not giving them that. And I mean, Uber and Lyft have done a better job over time. They now have, you know, if you, if you leave a four star or below rating on Uber, for example, they'll ask you what went wrong. And if you select an option like traffic, like you left the driver a four star rating because there was a lot of traffic, they actually won't count that rating against the driver uh, since, you know, like obviously drivers can't control traffic. No, that's great. And that was my question too. So my, my first question was, we're talk, let's talk municipalities as, as opposed to maybe airports right now. But that's the big thing right now. We're looking at pick up and drop off. And yeah. if we put them, is it the field of dreams? If you build it, they will come. Or, you know, if I'm, like you said, I, I want to be brought to this building. I don't want to get dropped off at some loading zone two blocks away and then have to walk. Yeah. But I guess if that was the only, like airports, you really don't have a choice. You have to meet me here. Um, yeah. The airport, you know, it's easier to control that. You're in a limited space versus a city. But I guess it's more up to the municipalities and Uber and Lyft to kind of create that situation where you have to meet here, you have to be dropped off here before. So it doesn't affect the driver's ratings. Yeah. So I think the important thing to consider is you have to listen to drivers. I'm not saying you should do everything that drivers want and everything that drivers say. The joke that I kind of often make is if you gave drivers the ability to set the rates, they'd probably price themselves out of the market, right? (laughs) Yeah. But What's happened in a lot of instances so far is, you know, Uber and Lyft, especially in rideshare, Uber and Lyft have really dominated the conversation in cities. It took them a while to sort of even realize, hey, what is this Uber app? <laughs> you know, what, what are these guys up to over here? Um, and by then it was a little too late. So Uber and Lyft had, sort of had this big presence and had their way. Cities are now catching up and saying, okay, here's what we want. But there's really no one out there advocating or even listening to what drivers want. And I think that's what's causing a lot of the imbalance and a lot of these issues. So for example, with this uh, pick up and drop off, right? If you made a location where drivers could, you know, now pick up and drop off, is every driver going to do that? Probably not. But you know, it's sort of a step in the right direction. And that sort of allows you to now build a system or build a game plan that's going to say, okay, what are, you know, driver's goals? What are Uber and Lyft's goals? What are the city's goals? And where you can all meet in the middle. So there are some cities, for example, like here in Los Angeles, I know Culver City is testing some pick up and drop off zones in sort of the busy area where, you know, like Friday, Saturday nights, 
you know, when the bars get out and there's a million people trying to call for their Ubers and Lyfts, there's now designated designated pickup and drop off zones. Same thing I've seen in the San Diego gas lamp district, where which is where a lot of people go out downtown. So there's sort of like some obvious use cases where you're just making drivers' lives much easier. And you know, are there still going to be a few drivers here and there? Yeah, but now you can kind of go to these companies and say, hey, we're going to start actually like really enforcing ticketing rules. You know, if we see drivers, you know, double parking and doing all that like that's the big problem i have right like the city of san francisco i think is like pretty notorious for ticketing drivers who are double parking but I, there's nowhere to park <laughs> you know as a driver you're trying to provide this service there's nowhere to pick up and drop off there's no, you know so there's it's sort of like uh, you know trying to uh, fix the the problem way too far down the road and there's you know they haven't even tried to make a solution yet you know as as well as i know that a lot of these cities across the united states they rely on this parking meter revenue to pay for a lot of the services mm -hmm. in the cities. And I think that the airports got it right where they said to Uber and Lyft, if, if you're going to use our curbs, you're going to pay for it. I'm yeah. kind of curious how that works. Is it like, is it Uber and Lyft provide the data or is there some kind of... And this is the nice thing about technology, right? It's really not that tough <laughs> um, since every ride is tracked via GPS and, you know, they can put a geofence around the airport so they know when drivers are going in on and off property and sort of same thing with passengers. So in Los Angeles, for example, in pretty much every city, there's actually an airport pickup fee. So if you're curious, I think Uber, if you go to the Uber website, it usually lists it there. You have to kind of make an estimated fare for your city and then down below it'll tell you the prices. Another good resource is uberestimate.com and you can kind of type in your city and see historical pricing and airport pickup fees. But basically what happens as a passenger, let's say I request a ride to the airport, Uber and Lyft both quote you an upfront fare and that fare is going to include the $3 you know, airport drop-off fee or whatever it might be. So the passenger is kind of paying that directly and probably doesn't even know it. Uh, so that's sort of how that uh, airport pickup and drop-off fee. And you're right, I think airports are actually doing a good job and you see a lot of different tests happening at airports and innovations. And that's kind of the one thing that I'm uh, excited for because Uber and Lyft do have a lot of cool, innovative features that, you know, maybe one step removed from someone who's, you know, just kind of trying to understand this. But, you know, at airports, for example, now some airports, you know, they're now testing having you go and instead of being picked up curbside, you know, maybe you can walk further away to the parking garage. You know, some airports like Las Vegas already did this. San Francisco is testing this. They're testing a pin system, I think, in Portland, Oregon, that would be kind of like a cab line. And you just walk up to the driver and they've got little zones and then you just give them the pin and get your ride. So it's a lot faster. And I think that once you start to understand what's possible, you can actually, as cities, you can kind of start incentivizing the things that you care about, right? Like I know uh, shared rides, for example, are big. So for example, if you had a system where passengers could get picked up at curbside, but they had to take an Uber pool uh, and share a ride, or they could walk to the garage and take an UberX, now you're kind of incentivizing that positive shared ride behavior. So uh, that's just sort of an example. That's great. And I, I read an article recently, like LAX, they were afraid with Uber and Lyft that you know they lose all this parking and rental car revenue. And what they found out was through this fee, they I think last year alone, they brought in I think it was $49 million from this Uber Lyft pickup drop-off fee. So I think that that's the next step with the municipalities is to kind of model after that, that airport and start charging yeah, and, I think and not the to number, hurt the drivers, but to pass that yeah. on to the customer. Just like, a, I guess, the toll works the same way. You go through a toll, that's, that's on the customer's fee, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, 
you know, one area where it does start, you know, I think drivers are a little bit worried about some of these fees kind of getting passed on to customers and then, you know, like kind of how that affects drivers. So I think it would be interesting to sort of see what can airports do or, you know, even cities do with those fees to ensure that, uh, you know, maybe drivers are somehow being compensated or maybe at the airports, for example, maybe the airports, I don't really expect this of the airports because in my experience, they're sort of really just care about the money. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, cities maybe might be a little bit more likely to take some of that money and invest it directly into services that would benefit drivers. Maybe it's, you know, even something simple like having more open public bathrooms for drivers or, you know, at airports, drivers actually have to queue up in uh, what they call uh, an airport waiting lot. And this is only for Uber and Lyft drivers. And some of these are like kind of disgusting. So, you know, LAX might have made $49 million last year off of Uber and Lyft pickups, but it would be nice if, uh, you know, they start reinvesting, you know, maybe even one one hundredth of that into some services for drivers or something that would kind of benefit them because uh, you can't always regulate what Uber and Lyft do, but you can, uh, you know, sort of maybe take some of that revenue and provide some value to drivers. You're speaking music to my ears. So one thing I do for a living is I talk to small towns about the value of paid parking. Yeah. And they're usually skeptical. And we explain the benefits of turnover, bringing more money into the businesses. But what usually gets them is, by the way, this is, this is revenue the town didn't have before. You could put that back into beach nourishment for your beaches, or you could put that back into the, the dog park you've been wanting to create, but never had the fun. So it's like, I like that idea. Like if, if you're charging Uber and Lyft for this, let's reinvest it in some better services for the drivers and the and yeah, and I think that's where actually the real opportunity is, you know, um, as far as, right, like typically a lot of these public transportation projects have been underfunded and it's been hard to get funding and it's hard to build bike lanes and this and that. And now you kind of have this revenue source where these companies are going to fight about it, but they're going to pay you money <laughs> as, a, as a city, as an airport, they're going to pay you money. And as long as it's within reason, you can kind of now probably fund a lot of these, uh, you know, positive uh, initiatives for the community or underserved or really whatever the constituents are that you care about. So that's kind of what I, where I think a lot of the opportunities. And I mean, frankly, cities are starting to do this. You know, they see that uh, Uber, you know, I think they, I'm hoping that they don't see them as just, you know, kind of like a revenue source and tap it. I'm hoping that they tap this revenue source and then reinvest it. That's what I want to see personally. That's well said. And you just touched on one thing I had on my, my list of questions, but I learned what a what'd you call it? A period one maybe is, I guess it's, you drop someone off and there's that time before you have your next ping or whatever you want to call it to get your next driver. Mm -hmm. This at the airport, you just have this line of just cars just waiting. Do we have something similar in the municipalities and can garages help with that? You know, you, you drop someone off in a busy downtown, like you said, every meter's taken, you're double parked. Yeah. What is it? What does the driver normally do? They drive outside of the downtown park at a gas station and wait, or can we tie and work with, together with garages to build these kind of waiting areas, if you will? Yeah. No, I think actually waiting areas are a big opportunity for garages and kind of repurposing parking. So that's why I think it is very interesting to understand, you know, kind of like what a driver is experiencing out there. You know, if I'm a parking company, that's kind of why I want to understand this because now I can kind of figure out what services I can provide or what value I can provide to drivers. And you kind of summed it up perfectly. That's exactly what happens. As soon as a driver drops someone off, right, there's nowhere for them to go. So they've got to keep moving. They've got to circle the block. They've got to drive around. They've got to pull over in a red zone. They're probably not going to find a parking spot, you know, especially during the busier times in a big city. So I'm sure that that is contributing to a lot of traffic and a lot of, uh, you know, has a lot of negative effects, but there's also nowhere for them to go. So Lyft, for example, I know that they announced uh, that they were going to kind of invest in some 
some, I can't remember what they call them, but they're calling them sort of like driver service centers. It would be kind of like, you know, a little area that they could take a pit stop with Wi-Fi, with bathrooms, with coffee. So there's definitely opportunity for that. And what I think is really interesting is that stuff like this is going to be key and like really essential to autonomous vehicles in the future, right? Because fleet owners, you know, right now, uh, since every driver is kind of independent and Uber and Lyft, you know, they literally label them as independent contractors. So they can't tell them what to do or where to go. But you can imagine if you're a fleet owner and you've got a thousand cars in the future, you're not going to want your cars driving around empty, right? You're, you're going to want somewhere for them to go, right? You're going to want to partner with local garages and say, hey, you know, I I'll pay you for the ability for my cars to park here whenever they don't have a ride and they can kind of like quickly come in and out. So that's why I think it's super interesting to study rideshare because in the future when these autonomous, the autonomous technology for self-driving cars is one thing, but all the systems and all the sensors and all the kind of just operations that are going to need to happen. I think rideshare today, like Uber and Lyft drivers are the perfect test bed to see what's happening and you know how to prevent or how to start building for those uh, future issues. Dude, I, I know you're a rideshare expert, but I also think you're you're a parking and mobility expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the thing, you know, I, I definitely, I don't know, I, I, I'm not a parking or mobility expert, but I know how rideshare works and like how these services integrate it. And just from a personal level, that's like something I'm interested in, right? Because I, I guess selfishly, like I live here in Los Angeles and it's got terrible traffic, terrible infrastructure, terrible public transportation. You know, I've traveled all around the world. So I think I'm in a good position to say that, you know, I've taken amazing trains in other countries and amazing subways ways. And selfishly, I want the city to get away. I think LA could be the greatest city in the world if you could get around better. So I think that's kind of also where I come from. Well, I just think you hit the nail on the head where our listeners know, but it just, when one driver double parks, it just messes up the whole ecosystem. Yeah. When, yeah. when people park in no parking zones or ADA. And I think that like you said, a lot of times they want to do the right thing, but we're not making it easy for them. You know, we, we're not providing right. the spaces. One thing too, like we kind of have a rule of thumb when I'm training and we do a lot of enforcement and if someone's in the car, their flashers are on, they're a Jimmy John's driver or Uber mm-hmm. driver, we, we leave them alone in most cases. Some cases, no, if you're, yeah. you're getting a ticket. But in the future, we won't have that luxury. You know, parking enforcement jobs, I read a recent article, they're number three jobs disappearing in the next 10 mm-hmm. years because cities are moving to more enforcement through cameras. And with cameras, you don't have that gray area. You know, if, yeah. a, if a rideshare driver is parked, double parked or parked in a, in a loading zone, they shouldn't be. They're going to get a ticket in the mail if they're not moved within a minute. And so we've got to come up with a solution, like you said, using our garages and infrastructure to create these cool, I guess, waiting areas and make it convenient for them. So you know, one of the things that sort of frustrates me on this side is that a lot of this stuff is not that hard to test out. I mean, it really doesn't take a genius to figure out, um, okay, in Los Angeles, you know, Uber and Lyft drivers, they tend to congregate, you know, and do a ton of pickups and drop-offs in Santa Monica, in the main areas, in West Hollywood, in downtown. You could literally go out and talk to one driver who drives a lot and he would be able to tell you like, yeah, I always end up at, you know, these few bars or these few restaurants or these few strips, right? And I think just by, you know, someone who understands the city, uh, they could figure that out too. So sort of when I see the conversations around, you know, cities arguing with Uber and Lyft over data, yet they haven't even tried anything, right? There's a lot that I think you can do on your own. And so that's sort of what I want to see, you know, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm here, or, you know, why I'm trying to participate in more of the transportation conferences and, you know, really kind of get the word out. Because I think there are a lot of opportunities for public and private companies, you know, to start testing some of this stuff on their own and then potentially, you know, see how they might work with Uber or Lyft or start integrating all the different uh, stakeholders. 
Yeah, it's it's parking. It's not rocket scientists. But <laughs> exactly. You're, you're dealing with so many. The term I like is you're dealing with so many competing interests. Everyone has their own say and own their own interest to take care of. But and you also touched on this. You talked about autonomous vehicles. You talk about this in chapter ten of your book. Just kind of mm-hmm. the future. I think you hit the nail on the head where. It, it's, it's always going to be a hybrid. You're still going to need the need for rideshare drivers, and there's going to be a ton of vehicle. Can you kind of give the cliff notes of that chapter or what you see? Yeah, kind definitely. Of the- yeah, the short answer is human drivers aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, you know, I think that, again, I'm not an expert in self-driving technology. I've talked to a lot of experts, but I think uh, we sort of know at this point it's a little further off than most people uh, might expect. But I guess regardless of whenever real self-driving and you know, real autonomous vehicles come, it's going to be expensive, just like any new technology. And right now, there's a couple million Uber drivers in the US. So I don't think overnight, there's going to be 2 million autonomous vehicles on the street. So it's going to be a slow transition just by the nature of the economics and the market size. But also, because, uh, you know, and, and they also are going to have to build all those systems and sensors that I talked about. I mean, right now, the Uber driver app doesn't even tell me which side of the street passenger is on. So that's something they'll need to fix too. But just to kind of uh, give you a little uh, insight into how much more they need to do beyond the technology. And really what I talked about in, in this chapter of my book is the fact that uh, you know a lot of the promise of self-driving technology, okay, there's no longer a driver, you know, we're going to be using electric cars, the maintenance is going to be way cheaper, we can get the cost of the ride down. This is actually going to make people want to take Uber and Lyft even more, right? Uh, over the past five years, price, it's now cheaper than ever to take an Uber and Lyft and we see more people riding. You know, I've taken passengers on an Uber pool that was literally one block and I said, why did you call an Uber for this? And they said, <laughs> why not? It was so cheap. And I said, well, you know, I can't argue with that. I, I, I mean, you know, why would I walk when you can just take an Uber pool for like a dollar or two, right? And there's some special promo, right? That's just to say that, right, we are going to see more people taking rides. And I think what that uh, might also mean is that it's just going to be hard for the companies that are bringing autonomous vehicles out to keep up with demand. And so you're going to have, you know, kind of like the more successful autonomous vehicles are, the more demand you're going to have because it's going to get cheaper and cheaper. And so I think there's always going to be room for those human drivers, at least you know, in the medium, maybe eventually, I don't know, long term, maybe they're completely gone. But I think they're going to be around for a while. And then, of course, I think you're going to have a lot of a lot of passengers who just prefer human interaction and, you know, maybe don't trust (laughs) autonomous vehicles or whatever it might be. And you mentioned they're still struggling to to tell you which side of the road the passengers on. And I think that's because they they spent so much time making sure drivers are quiet when someone hits the quiet mode. So I read that in the, I read that on your blog, actually, but I know it's being highly criticized, but dude, I, I'm an introvert. Small talk for me is very difficult. I read the, I watched an episode. I don't know if you heard that show, Nathan, for you, but it's pretty hysterical. He, he, he wanted to introduce this, this quiet mode to taxi drivers. But, you know, I, I just think, I actually kind of think it's neat, but I guess it's pretty pretentious and pretty rude to the drivers. But do you have a, a take on, on the quiet mode for those that... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's positives and negatives. You know, I think one of the things that worries me about something like quiet mode, it's like, have we gotten to the point in our world where we like can't have a simple human interaction with someone else? You know, like everything kind of has to be done through an app. And, the, and you know, maybe it's just like, that's the way of the future. You know, you're going to go into McDonald's in the future. There's not going to be a cashier. You're just going to hit a screen. I mean, if you've been to Japan, it's kind of already like that in a lot of fast food <laughs> restaurants. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that's just sort of the, the way of the future. But I do think uh, one of the things that I enjoy about my job is that 
in my normal walk of life, I probably wouldn't talk to a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers and, you know, sort of even talk to people from different, these different walks of life. But I do think it's uh, interesting to kind of hear their perspectives and it's very different than mine. I mean, these people are coming from very different backgrounds and different ages and sexes and races and everything. So, um, you know, kind of just you know, staying grounded and I think keeping in touch with uh, people in other areas of life or the city that you might not normally encounter. That's one of the things I, I think, you know, is uh, good from both the passenger and the driver perspective. I get my haircut at this barbershop and they have in my notes how I like my haircut. They have a note yeah. that says, doesn't like small talk. <laughs> so they know, they know. I just want to. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I see the appeal, you know, I definitely, I definitely get it, right? Like it would be amazing to just get into a car and like everything is the exact way you like it. So maybe I'm being a little, uh, uh, like old timer, you know, like, oh, well, back in my day. But uh, no, I mean, I remember reading your book. And one thing you said, I think you were working from home or, or, or working on your education. You just said you were kind of mm-hmm. starved for human interaction. That's one way, one reason you did the job just to meet new yeah. people. And, and you don't want to take that away from the drivers where we're already taking away so, so much. So I guess in closing, uh, just, you know, the recent Uber Lyft strike, I guess, can you just share a moment on your, on your opinions of, about that and kind of what do you think uh, we could do, you know, as as an industry for, for these rideshare drivers? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, and this is sort of where, what it gets at is, right, like the, the quiet, the comfort mode, you know, it's some drivers felt it was a little dehumanizing. And I think that in general, like, obviously, I've got lots of people in my life that work for me or, you know, that I hire for services. But I do think like kind of thinking of others, you know, drivers, particularly like on, you know, not that I, I, I think that sometimes there's this uh, feeling that they might be below you, right? Okay, they're giving me a ride, I'll make them wait, I'll, you know, they can do this for me, they can get my luggage. And, you know, I think that that at times can cause some issues. And, you know, some of the major, maybe the bigger issues we're seeing societally and economically, but in regards to this strike, particularly and how that ties in is just the fact that you know there's a lot of turnover in this industry for some drivers it works out well for them but for a lot of others you know it hasn't worked out so well and i think that when you look at the metrics and the valuations of uber and lyft and how much money investors made and how much uh, employees are getting paid and you know how uh, a lot of people in this industry have had a lot of success but for drivers you know it's sort of just been status quo things haven't definitely haven't gotten better but they haven't gotten much worse it's sort of a lot of the issues, uh, you know, have kind of just remained. And I think for a lot of drivers, it's unfortunate. You know, I t- I've talked to probably over 50,000 drivers over email and in person and on the phone and social media over the past five years. And one thing I found is that a lot of them invest a lot of time and, you know, effort and energy into becoming a good driver. And when Uber cuts rates, for example, many of them might quit. And, you know, uh, that's kind of the complaint I hear from people. Oh, if you don't like it, just quit. But I don't think it's, you know, a lot of drivers don't want to quit, right? <laughs> I mean, I think you probably like your job. If, if you got a huge pay cut tomorrow, um, you'd probably be pretty pissed too and wouldn't want to just quit. You wouldn't want to give up on what you've started. So I think just understanding that point of view, I think uh, from a labor perspective, I think this is like a big risk for Uber and Lyft. I think autonomous vehicles are very far off. And if they can't really, you know, kind of have, you know, if, if basically to say if, if drivers can get organized enough to the point where they're actually impacting service when they go on strike and, you know, when they call for a one day strike and you can't get an Uber or Lyft ride, I think that's really dangerous for Uber and Lyft's business model. So I kind of think that they need to uh, pay it. I mean, they're definitely paying attention to this, but, uh, you know, I, I see some issues, some potential issues there down the road. Yeah, I got two thoughts. So I th- you said the word kind of dehumanizing and it's even like society and pop culture. I watched a movie mm-hmm. this weekend called Booksmart 
and the principal, summer break, he's picking yeah. up two kids. He's an Uber driver and, and they make it like this awkward and, oh, I'm embarrassed. Oh, I need some side money. This is just, you know, it's like, dude, this is people's career. People make yeah. good money, especially if they're following the, the tips from your book. There's a plug there, <laughs> but I don't like that aspect of it. But the other thing I wanted to say was, was something I could do better is tipping. And, you know, when I take a taxi, you know, if it's $20, I'm like, here's 30. You know, it's like, yeah. it just feel like you're supposed to tip, you have to tip. And I think that Uber, because at first they didn't allow you to tip. Now that they do, I feel like I might cheat my company because I expense my reports. Am I supposed to tip? You know, Uber said you weren't supposed to tip. And now when I, you know, the strike and reading more about the self-employed and taxes, it's like, no, I, I'm going to tip. I'm going to tip every single time and I'm going to expense it because I think that should be the norm, but uh, that's just my history learning. Yeah, no, I mean, driver. Yeah. I think the best way to put right. it is like, I think everyone should work a, you know, kind of minimum wage job or a service job at some point in their life, because you really sort of start to see how others treat you, um, how you treat others. And I think it kind of just makes you think about that. And that's one of the things I've enjoyed about uh, driving for Uber and Lyft is that it keeps you grounded. And it kind of, you know, some passengers are frankly, like extremely rude <laughs> um, and extremely uh, you know, I, w- I won't swear, but you, you could kind of imagine where I'm going here with <laughs> yeah. their drivers. And it kind of just reminds you like, hey, this guy is not someone who, uh, you know, I want to behave like I have a son who's 16 months old, and I don't want him to be like this guy when he grows up. So how can I instill those values on him? And as far as tipping, I think definitely, that's one of the issues that a lot of drivers complain about is, you know, the, the service came out and Uber and Lyft were paying drivers pretty well. <laughs> I think uh, I, I talk about in my book when I first started driving, uh, there, I was making over $30 an hour. I was making more driving Uber and Lyft five years ago than I was as an engineer at my day job. So, uh, you know, all the people who made fun of me at my, at my day job for driving Uber and Lyft, take that. But, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so I think with the kind of tipping... When Uber and Lyft did pay, there were, I mean, you might have been to a restaurant that says, oh, you know, we provide healthcare for our employees, so we add this service charge, or there's no need to tip because, you know, our employees, we pay them a fair hourly wage, you know, above average. And I think when Uber and Lyft were doing that, no drivers, you know, were complaining about the fact that they couldn't get tips. You know, there are a lot more drivers in the early days providing water bottles and amenities. And if you've noticed over time, kind of anecdotally, like the cars are getting a lot crappier. (laughs) Um, You know, drivers are not doing as good of a job taking care of their car. I think a lot of those better drivers, a lot of them have quit. There are a lot of newer drivers. So, um, you know, I think that unfortunately, so the service in some respects, uh, you know, I, when Uber first came out, I didn't ever hear a single complaint about it. I hear complaints about Uber drivers all the time now <laughs> about the Uber experience all the time. It still has a lot of positives. But I think, uh, you know, when you do get that drive, that's all to say when you do get that good driver, it is nice to reward them with a tip because they're out there working pretty hard. They're not making a ton of money. And, uh, you know, a, a dollar or two might not mean a lot to you, but that can really add up for a driver. A side note, my first job, I, I was working for this guy in his garage. And he's like, dude, you choose your own hours. I know you're in school. You play basketball, sports. And so I loved it. And then I realized that choosing your own hours, he was claiming at the end of the year, I was self-employed. So I was, I was just so <laughs> proud, making my $9 an hour, just killing it. And then my dad's like, you owe $3,000 as a 50-year-old. <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah, but this is what, this is rideshare drivers. You know, this is yep. stuff that they're dealing with. But um, I, I'm conscious of your time, man, so we could wrap it up. But I guess any, any last words on how the parking industry Anything we can do or, or best practices or suggestions on how we can make it easier for TNC drivers as we move forward with new technologies and, and new curb demand? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing is that there's a lot of opportunity right now 
And it sort of starts with listening to drivers, um, you know, sort of seeing where their issues are, where their struggles are. I mean, we work with a, uh, one of our advertising partners is a rideshare lawyer, and he actually went out and drove for Uber and Lyft, right? So that's kind of the cool thing, right? It's, it's not like you're working, like you said, with rocket scientists where you could never do what they're doing. Like if you want to understand the issues, you can literally today, right now, go to my site, use my sign up code, just kidding, and uh, sign up to be an Uber or a Lyft driver. And that'll be you know, a really great experience. Um, and then from there, you know, I think you start to see where these things are that you can test, right? Because right now, I don't even see a lot of stuff being tested that could potentially, you know, kind of like that fleet example, right? In the future, when you know for sure that autonomous vehicle fleet owners are not going to want their cars idling around, they're going to want somewhere to park. Like to me, just off the top of my head, that seems like a huge opportunity for parking garages. And okay, well, we don't know how long that's going to take. Who can we get to test this out in the meantime? Uber and Lyft drivers seem like a pretty good fit. So that's a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in. And also, frankly, like some of the stuff that we help on the consulting side um, with bigger companies and, uh, you know, really a lot of people in the mobility space and, you know, kind of understand that worker and driver's perspective. So if uh, anyone wants to learn more about the site, uh, we've got the rideshareguy.com. I've also got a podcast where I interview a lot of people in the industry, everyone from drivers to kind of I just had the COO of Lyft on my podcast and others in the scooter industry and, you know, basically anything that moves. And I can tell you from experience, they're all great. I've checked out the blog, the podcast and the book. How can they get the hands on the book? Is that from your, your, yeah, your so, website as well? Uh, the book is on Amazon. So you can buy the book on Amazon. And I think uh, that is probably the thing I put the most effort into and is the lowest priced out of everything I've done. So it's probably the best deal. Uh, you know, it, it is geared more for Uber and Lyft drivers, but you can definitely learn a lot about the industry. And you know, I've got a couple, uh, I've got a lot of stories in there to make it interesting and touch on like autonomous vehicles at the end and, you know, kind of give an overview of the industry too, from the driver's perspective. No, it's great stuff. And I'm just a very curious person. So i promise you I'm going to become an Uber or Lyft driver just to kind of experience <laughs> that firsthand and learn. And I'll have you back on my podcast when, uh, uh, after I do it. And, oh, I think yeah, well, maybe I'll have you on my podcast to discuss your experience oh, as a driver oh. from the parking perspective. So we can chat about that. <laughs> I would love it. I would. All right, Harry, thank you so much for, for playing today. This was wonderful. One of my best yet. I think that our listeners are really, really going to enjoy kind of hearing what you have to say, because this is this is like the number one trend in our industry is meters versus pick up and drop off. And how do we kind of solve this curb management almost crisis, I would say, that we're dealing with. So thank you so much for sharing this with our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And, you know, we didn't even talk scooters, so that might be the next one. <laughs> hey, that's the next part. Yeah, well, we'll you'll have to part two coming, uh, coming to a podcast near you soon. So cool. thank you so much, Harry, man. Have a great week. Take care. All right, see you, buddy. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Parking Podcast. Please leave us a review and tell a friend about our show. It would mean a lot. This has been a production of Synchronicity Media, produced by me, Isaiah Mao. Our music and score is by Zona. Our show art and design is by the talented Allison Gilly. You can follow us on social media at The Parking Podcast, or you can find our website with bonus content at parkingcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.